0: And welcome to part two of the Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine interview with Jason Schron of Rapido. All right, you've got a, this lifelong love of, of passenger trains. So there was no question in your mind when you said, okay, I want to make a living in model railroading, yeah. that it was going to be passenger cars. To
1: start, yeah. I mean, we're getting into some freight stuff now, but definitely, definitely passenger cars. Okay.
0: How did the and i and I'm just kidding you here, but how did the obsession with detail evolve with you
1: well it, it just it has been there all my life i mean okay. um when I was you know we started taking the train in Montreal when I was two um i my first memory is my second trip on the turbos the way, the way back from Montreal to Toronto is my first my first actual memory uh, and i I've, I've you know came back 20 years later and confirmed it with my parents. He said, yep, that's actually what happened. So it, it wasn't just a dream or something. Um, and, uh, and so we were always, you know, several times a year we'd go to Gilwood Station to pick up my, uh, my grandmother, my great aunt, my grandfather at the train station because they're coming from Montreal. And so I'd be there on the platform. And when you're, you know, three feet tall, passenger cars in Canada don't have skirts. They never did. Um, there's very little, very little skirting because of all the snow buildup in the wintertime. Having skirts is a real problem for, for maintenance because um, the snow and ice gets just sort of gunged up up there. So, you know, I would always have to buy American models, uh, of whether it was Mantua or River Rossi and slice off the skirts, right, because I have to do the, the Canadian models versions of them. Um, and so when you're three feet high, all you see when a conventional train pulls up is plumbing. You see AC condenser, compressor. You see water tanks. You see air reservoirs. You see D22 valves, the control valve, the relay valve, relay valve, the quick service valve. You see pipes. You see steam traps. These are all the things you see. Battery boxes under the car, and so, um, and of course the trucks. And I remember when I was five years old, my brother and my and my father went to Montreal earlier. I think my father had a meeting, um, and then my mother and they took the turbo. My mother and I came a few days later, and we took uh, the uh, the Lakeshore. It was the the train that, that used to split in Brockville for Ottawa and Montreal. So our Montreal section, we're going, we're cruising along, and then we coast to a stop in Cornwall Station. Um, and we get off the train in Cornwall. Why? Because the engine caught on fire. So we're stuck in Cornwall for two hours. It was a beautiful sunny day, except I was very upset that the uh, the in the cafe coach lounge, the guy ran out of the food that I liked. I think it was pizzas or something like that. And uh, and so I, I, had, I had time to kill. So I asked my mother for some paper and, and crayons, and I drew a sketch. At five years old, I copied what the trucks looked like, because when my brother and I would draw pictures of via trains, the, the trucks never looked realistic. Right, I felt that the they didn't look real. I mean, I called them the wheels, obviously. No, they were called trucks. Um, and I actually drew a sketch of them, of 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 the truck of our of our conventional cars, the same cars that we manufactured, um, and the same one built in the basement. And I guess you see, it, it was there when I was five, right? And so when I started the company, I, I started designing the first car. The first thing I did was uh, to go to some stored cars um, at various museums and and tourist lines. And crawl underneath them and measure and photograph every pipe, every hose, everything under those cars. Um, and, of course, it was minus 20 outside when I did it because, uh, you know, you have, it had, if you're going to be crawling under a car, it's either going to be 47 degrees Celsius or minus 20 Celsius, right? You can never do it on a nice day in the spring, right? So I, uh, I, I, I measured all the stuff under there. And, I mean, when I was when I was um, building my own models for, for my own layout, uh, I was, again, scraping off those river Rossi underbodies, scratch filling battery boxes, going by photos. Uh, I didn't know what anything was, but I wanted it to look right. I still have those models, by the way, and they, they're, boy are they clunky compared to what we've done lately. But, uh, so when I, when I, you know, I, I was determined that as a model railroader and a train nut, um, I saw what was under the car to be as important as what was above the, the floor right? Because if you get a model of a Corvette, you know, and you expect when you open up the hood, it's going to have the right engine inside. You don't expect just to have a, a block of styrene that looks nothing like an engine. Well, if you buy most manufacturers model passenger cars, um, there's just a bunch of blobs under there that are very roughly roughly shaped. You know, st- the stuff that's right on the outside generally looks okay, but inside is very, very rough, um, or not or doesn't exist at all, or like the Rossi cars, it's completely fictional. Um, and And I felt that, it's the stuff under the floor that's like the Corvette engine for a passenger train, right? It's the stuff that makes the passenger car work. You need to have the steam equipment for the heat. You need to have the AC equipment for the cool air. You need to have the air equipment or you won't have any running water. You won't, your train won't be able to stop. I mean, that sort of thing, right? You need to have that equipment to make it work. So it was determined that you know it's important to me as a modeler to have all of it under there. And then of course I'm, I love riding the train, so I wanted to have as much interior detail as possible—the faucets on the sinks, you know, uh, uh, the the headrests, the the footrests on on the seats, uh, the luggage racks, everything. Um, because especially because these cars had all been retired, and you know, as time goes on, there are fewer and fewer of them out there. Especially the Turbo Train is nothing exists for the Turbo Train. And this way, by having a model of it and by having the faucets in the bathroom. And I remember the turbo bathrooms. I remember the the, the greenish blue water when you flush the toilet, the chemicals, right? And and uh, these are things I remember, and I wanted to recreate that in the model. Um, and I figured it's important enough to me to have all that stuff. And a lot of it you can't see when you're just running a train by at 30 miles an hour, but you know it's there. You know you've got. Every, every pipe that's on the, the prototype down to a half inch diameter is going to be on the models. You know it's there. And you know that if somebody who worked on the railway, who, who had to maintain these cars for 12 hours a day, and would pick up a car and turn it over, and this has happened with our models, and that, that's what I love when that happens. When someone looks, oh man, I remember that. You know, I remember the, that steam trap freezing up, that one right there by the vestibule, and I remember we had no <laughs> heat in any of the roomettes, you know, that sort of thing, right? Um, I, I love when that happens. And so it's very important to me to have that detail, even though um, we probably could get by without it. And, and I'm sure our sales would not be at all affected if we didn't have it. It's still so important to me that it's there. You know, it's like this, this is, a, this is a, a testament. This is a, a piece of memory, um, uh, the, the, these models. It's, you know, and, and it, as, as much as I can include w- within the manufacturing process, and obviously you don't want to end up paying $300 for a car. So within the bounds of what's realistic and, and economical, I will include it.
0: So as I'm looking on your on your website yeah. which is uh, for the listeners in case you're not familiar, it's rapedotrains dot com and rapido trains is all one word. And you can click on the links it'll take you to the Supercontinental series and you'll see the the amount of detail that Jason's speaking of. So as I look at this car and it looks like, you know, all the steam lines, the airlines, uh what looks like a a generator, these are Probably, what, cast separately, and then your labor people, assembly people, put them in, you know, building up layer from the floor to the next layer. and set.
1: That's, that's and, basically how it's done. There are okay. some ways to, to cut corners where if you've got a bunch of pipes that are on mm-hmm. the same plane and there's another pipe that intersects them, you can actually cast that at once at one piece, provided there's not some weird curves that would require undercutting on the mold, uh, you know, that's, it's impossible by the laws of physics. Uh, okay. Then there's, sometimes we can put them together in one. I remember, i uh, are working on the FPA-4 locomotive right now. Uh, the GMV-1 mm-hmm. locomotive is in tooling right now, and the FPA-4 is in design stage. Um, and, uh, Bill put together the plumbing diagram. And, you know, when, when Huang looked at the, the, the plumbing diagram, he just said, oh my god! Uh, Huang is our engineer. He's, he's our uh-huh. chief engineer. Um, and, uh, and then Bill said, Oh, hang on, but you can actually cast these 15 different pipes as one piece, right? Okay. They are all separate pipes, but there went. so I think he ended up having like three layers of pipes. So the okay. installation really only involves at that location, three pieces to install and you end up with 25 pipes. Right, okay. but a lot of them are individual, individual pipes that are installed. Like most of it. are, I mean our, our cars, our average car contains between two and three hundred parts. Uh, especially the, 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 cars for the Canadian. They, we went a bit nuts, uh, with the Canadian. <laughs> well, like, I love Genomotor. Genomotor, you said, you mentioned the generator. Underneath yeah. each car, Um, in, in, before the days of head and power was an axle driven generator. So this, right. this hung between the, below the center sill. And there was a, a drive shaft coming from the axle, and they would uh, turn the generator, which would fill charge the batteries. So when the train is sitting, you would have uh, battery power. And if you had to sit too long, you'd have to either plug in to recharge at the station, or you'd bring what's called a battery charging car, which was a special car that was just filled with diesel generators, so you could have that, that electricity. And then you use, you use the connections in between cars called the train line connections, which are up in the, the top of the vestibule, and you would link all the cars together. Um, that's how you power your train. But, uh, but when it's operating normally, you've got this generator called a Genomotor. Um and the, the Genomotor is obviously connected to the major, the primary junction box. So on the Canadian, they, every car has a Genomotor. Um but the junction box, thank you people in Bud in Philadelphia, uh, is located at a different location for every car. So what, you know, most, a lot of manufacturers don't put the Genomotor on there at all, and they certainly don't put the Junction box. So we had both. But I wanted them to be connected by cables, because in a real train, I mean, it's a very visible, big hunk of three cables that connects one to the other. Um, so we actually designed the genomotor in two pieces, where you've got the main bar of the genomotor, the same for every car, but the end piece of the genomotor is a separate piece, and attached to that, cast into that, are the cables leading to the uh, the, the, the junction box. So you've got the junction box in five different places. We have five different end caps with the cables bending to the correct direction, right? So it's either bends to the left, bends to the right, goes straight, bends in a U-turn, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And that that's how obsessed I get with this sort of thing, right? Okay. And, yeah, it means a a few extra parts. It means that my cost is going to be a little bit higher. But if you look at our retail prices, we're fairly in line with what else is out there for the guy. The other manufacturers don't have any of these pipes, and their cars are around the same price as ours. So, uh, so it means that we're, we're, we're living with a lower margin, but to me it's important to have that stuff on there. Because again, you know,
0: you wouldn't, a generator
1: wouldn't work if it wasn't connected to anything. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay, and that's an interesting point because your MSRP is what, around $79 for most cars?
1: Uh, it ranges from 70 up to 80. Yeah, I think, I don't think we've gone above 80. 79. Okay. I we've gone.
0: And, since I've been tracking this stuff since, like, 2006, 2007, your prices haven't changed that much, whereas if we take cars from another very large supplier uh who's only recently begun putting, like, grab irons on and so forth, right. percentage-wise, his price has gone up, you know, 30%. He's still in the ballpark of you, but, you know, relative change of price has
1: yeah, I mean, we yeah, we started, up, sure. we we went up to 60, we started at, we were at 50 in the U.S., at 60 in Canada when we first started, and that changed very quickly, went up to 60 everywhere because the currencies were moving all over the place. I said, you know what, I can't have different currencies, different prices in different countries, it's going to be 60 bucks wherever it is, right? Um, and we, so we were at 60 really from 2007, and I think it was 2009 we went up to 65. And then 2011, 2010, 2011 went up to 70 for, for one car, uh, and for the, the Supercontinental line and 80 for the Osgood Bradleys. The Osgood Bradleys are a very expensive project. Uh, the cost of tooling one Osgood Bradley is the same as tooling two Supercontinental cars. So, you know, just about. Um, it, it's a very expensive car, uh, just because of the design of it. And because there's the, the you have a skirted version, a partial skirt, and a non-skirt, that really adds to the cost. Um, it's an expensive car to make for some reason. Um, you know, it's more also with all the individual seats and sides, all those little coach seats, you know, and everything like that. So it's it's an expensive car. So the Osby brownleys are up around eighty dollars, um, but still the supercontinental cars last release was seventy, um, and uh, and I suspect. Um, down the road we're going to see more price increases but they're not going to be they're not going to be astronomical you know i've just i've just had to accept a lower margin so my costs in china have gone up enormously uh my i'm paying now almost double what i paid for a passenger car in 2006 uh but uh, but my prices have gone up from 60 to 80 you know and i've just accepted i'm i'm not going to make as much money you know, our, our company is really, really lean. Uh, we had to stop advertising, uh, in, in the biggest model train magazine because the ads is just too expensive. Uh, we, we try and keep things really lean because we want to keep, we want to keep our products to be relatively affordable. You know, even something like the Canadian, which is a huge project, it's $1,500 retail. But for $1,500, you're getting 10 passenger cars, all with level detail better than the Super Continental line. And you're getting three locomotives, two powered with sound. So you know, I, I, when you when you actually break it out, it's it's not that expensive.
0: No, yeah, and that's and it's all about value. The uh, I mean, we older guys, if, if details getting smaller, I got to get a bigger desk to put a bigger magnifier on it. But until a, yeah, you know, I used to hand drill these number eighty holes to put these grab irons on passenger cars, and I went, yeah, I would gladly pay the price difference. And just go ahead and, if I had the right road name, buy the Rapido. All this stuff is done. So, yeah. Well, and then a friend of mine goes, you know, go to Micromark and buy one of the little Chucks. And it allowed me to at least bring some of my older cars up to standard because yeah. then you just put it in a powered screwdriver. And Yes, I, did. You know, I just
1: picked up two of those. They were on sale. <laughs> I, lo- I love Micromark. I get so many tools at Micromark.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now. Let me ask, because uh, I'm looking at your interior, and really, a lot of the competitive interiors out there are just, you know, monochrome, you know, not accurate detailing of seats and so forth like that, uh, and then you look at your seats, they're painted, you know, the floor's a different color, the headrests are a different color. My gosh, there's microwaves in the, uh, in the lounge area and a refrigerator.
1: Yeah, I love that. that having that microwave in the cafe bar lounge, I love that. I love that. Yes. And there's coffee makers in our, in our Club Deluxe car. Yeah, little, little, yeah little, I see little a coffee bun- maker. Automatic coffee maker in there.
0: <laughs> so all of this stuff is not molded in two-color plastic like in the seats. Part of your process is you're painting these seats. Yeah,
1: so all the interior seats, uh, well, the interiors, everything's painted uh and if you look on the um, the the seats depending on which ones they are so the club cars that have the the two tone brown seats those are actually painted by hand the into the middle of the seats um, the uh the canadian has anti macassars on the seats those are printed with a printing machine um, and the canadian also has um, the the real train has those etched glass panels with birdies on them in the dining car Flowers in the coach, and, and also flower, uh, floral pattern in the park car. We're doing those as well. So we actually, you take the little tiny plastic piece and you print the the etching onto it um, and with with a pad printing machine. Um, you know, again, it's all about recreating the train experience. It's very funny. I, um, I we, Bill spent a week doing the drawings of the birdies in the dining car because there's four different birds. There's four different panels, and there's four different birds with you know the sticks and the leaves and everything else. Um, and so we had to draw all of those for, for the pad printing. Um, and then I realized that I didn't have any good photos of the, the, the pattern in the park car, which is the dome not observation car. Um, so I called up my friend at, at a, let's call it a local maintenance center. Um, and I said, listen, uh, do you have a park car there? He says, yeah, there's one outside my office. I said, we got to come photograph it. Yeah, I'm here. No problem. So we go to the yard. We, uh, we get into the car, and I'm photographing this, the, it's very hard to photograph glass, I'll tell you, cause you you, go, you know, you, you can't use a flash, right? Because otherwise you get the flash. And I'm trying to photograph in a very small lounge. So I'm trying to photograph a very big window. Um, and meanwhile, Dan and, and our friend are sitting in the, in the, in the, the bullet lounge at the end of the car, just, you know, sh- shooting the breeze. And then we hear this buzzer go off. Ah! And, uh, suddenly our friend's oh god, we gotta get out of here! <laughs> And we ran out of the car just as the locomotive coupled up to it and took it away. So if we had been there for five minutes more, we would have been stuck on the back of the train to Montreal. And we would have had a lot of explain to do when we arrived in Montreal. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. In this parked car. But I, like that, that's the, the, the lengths that we go to. Uh, and they're fun. It's, it's a lot of fun to do stuff like that. You know, they end up having great stories about all of our experiences trying to get these various measurements. Uh, you know, I remember just when I was working on the LRC cars, when I was, people was part-time out of my, out of my apartment, and I was riding an LRC, and I had to get measurements from underneath the car. Uh, so I got up to the the platform early, and I said to the attendant, can you, you know, keep an eye on this to make sure that nothing moves? Sure! And I'm, you know, I'm stretching my tape measure under the body of the, of the passenger car. You know, he's like, what are you
0: doing? (laughs) You
1: know, you know, I, you're not allowed to do that. (laughs) Give me five minutes. Okay, you're not allowed to do that. And then there's another time we I actually had to book a train trip to Belleville, which is about an hour and a half away, uh, because I had to measure the LRC club car interior. I didn't have any interior dimensions. So, uh, I got on the, on board and I, I, take out my tape measure, my notepad, and I say to Sleeman, who is the service manager, I said, listen, uh, we've met before because, you know, I've, I've been on the train with you before. I have to measure everything. So can you just ignore me for the next hour? He says, yeah, no problem. So he's trying to serve lunch to everybody as I'm going throughout the car measuring all the doors in his kitchen. Right, and then I had to turn a seat around so I could measure the back of the seat, you know, etc. And he's just looking at me like, "You're crazy. <laughs> You're absolutely crazy." Like, you, got yeah. a, you got a mention in the instructions. <laughs> the thank you for being patient with me as I spent an hour crawling all over a car in service. Yeah. Train. So they're very patient with me at V in general. I'm, I'm, gen- I'm known in head offices. You know, they sort of nod and smile a lot when I start talking. <laughs>
0: Okay, well you're, I mean, the product line, cause I, the other day doing some background on this, just was scrolling through the, uh, the website, and as I mentioned in the, the memo, couple, well, maybe two years or so ago, you could download and print out your catalog. And so, due to one of my wife's, uh, consulting projects, we had, uh, a wide bed uh, archival printer here. And so I fed this stuff with some real, I had a bunch of high end paper and printed this thing out. And I just kept thumbing through the pages. I said, and she goes, What is that? Is that a manual? I said, No, it's this guy's catalog. I was blown away by just the product diversity and then the number of road names. Do you still have that approach? Uh, I'm sorry, that approach? Because I'm looking, for instance, I'm on the page where the six four six sleeper is, and I look at all these different road names that you've made this thing in, and over the probably what past couple years?
1: Well, the six four six, we actually that was a victim of the recession. Uh, okay. We, we was ready in 2009, but you know our sales fell off a cliff, as a lot of people's sales fell off a cliff, and so we actually put that on hold. And we kept, we added some additional paint schemes and then made them all at once. So we just delivered the last, the last of those were delivered, uh, last month. So it's, it's that recent. And we started delivering them, uh, in the spring or summer and we finished delivering them last month. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it took, those were held for quite a while and we were still, we've got some projects that, that are on hold for now. Um, uh, like as the LSU locomotive and the, uh, the Osgoode Bradleys, the, uh, Southern Pacific Osgood Bradleys. Uh, just because of the economy and orders, uh, you know, we announced these early on, but orders just didn't materialize. Those are two projects like I can mention because we're definitely making them. The LRC has already been tooled. Uh, the osgood Bradley will be tooled. I mean, they're definitely being done. Um, but uh, even if we lose money on them, because, you know, you want to, you don't want to get a reputation of announcing stuff and canceling it. Uh, we had to cancel one project, the C-liner, um, because of lack of interest. But uh, but you don't want to get that reputation. So sometimes you accept you're going to take a bath on something. Uh, but I think for example the Oscar Bradley is important, you know, because a lot of guys out in, in the Southwest and and, and uh, Southeast states don't really know who we are because our stuff's been largely Canadian and Northeast uh, in terms of you know 100% prototypical stuff. So mm-hmm. so you know it's worth even if we don't make any money on the Southern Pacific Oscar Bradleys and the and the um, the uh, Kansas City Southerns, it's worth doing them. You know, just, just to, as, as a promotional exercise or anything else. And the LSE locomotive we're going to be doing after the Canadian as well. And I'm, we're actually going to be launching a whole bunch of uh, new road numbers and an unnumbered version uh, to increase the sales on that before we actually make it. But, you know, I mean, I have my name on the bill of sale of an LSE locomotive. I really have to manufacture the model, <laughs> right, because we <yeah>, involved <laughs> them in saving it for the for the, uh, for the museum. But I will tell you, on the, in the passenger car front, um, we've had to adjust our business model a bit. Because when we started, there, war- there weren't a lot of passenger cars out there. Um, and what was out there was, was not extremely detailed. Uh, I still believe that what's out there is not extremely detailed. But there, the, the market has been inundated with passenger cars from several different manufacturers. Um, and, and largely uh, due to the recession, what's ended up happening is manufacturers who are expecting a certain amount of return. Like the larger, larger companies are, are much more restricted than we are. Uh, we're lucky that we're small, we're lean. We can sort of, you know, we can sort of move with the direction of the economy. We can we can change it on a dime, etc. cetera. Um, a larger company can't do that. They've got much higher overheads than we do. So one of the ways that the larger companies have coped with the recession is releasing many more varieties of products. So, you know, you go into the back catalog, you take 10 different cars, and you release them all um, in a whole bunch of different paint schemes. So with so many cars on the market, you know, when we brought out our Jinx Blue uh Missouri Pacific Jenks Blue cars. We were the only ones doing Jenks Blue. You know, I don't think anyone had ever done Jinks Blue. Uh maybe someone had done one in the seventies or something, who knows? But you know, there was nothing out there in Missouri Pacific Jinks Blue and it did really well for us. Um, then when we announced the uh the cars in Jinks Blue, the, the Grill Parlor and the the six four six sleeper, by that time there were a whole bunch of guys making stuff in Jinx Blue. Right? So our sales, Jinx Blue was a very, very popular paint scheme for us when we first started out. And then it became not so much, right? Because there were so many things available in Jinx Blue, there was too much choice. Um, that's just one example, right? So there have been situations where we, we can't bring out all the paint schemes we want because you really need to have a, a critical mass. Uh, Chicago Northwestern is one paint scheme that we can't do at all anymore. We just can't do it. Uh, there's the guys, the CNNW modelers are basically satisfied what they have. Uh, we did a lot of models in the CNNW, um, and now there've been a whole bunch of other models from other manufacturers in CNNW. And so now we find that we can't sell enough of the Chicago Northwestern to actually bring out any more models in Chicago Northwestern. Uh,
0: kind of like a saturation point. Yeah. Been
1: Amtrak is another example. Uh, while well, I think there's a huge market for contemporary Amtrak. You try and bring out a smooth side phase one Amtrak cars, and it's it's hard to sell them. You don't sell that many, you know. So it, 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 there are challenges that are, that didn't exist in 2007 and 2008 because of the economy and what's that what that's required certain manufacturers to do to just to stay above board. And you can't blame them, you know. You can't blame them. There was a situation where uh, two manufacturers were making the same model. One was an accurate model. One was a, a stand-in um and, and I was talking with with the manufacturer who did the stand in he said you know I feel this other guy is really angry at us but the reality is you know our backs against the wall <laughs> you know we we we've, we've, we've got to make a certain amount of money to, to stay above uh, stay, stay afloat and this is something we could do that's pretty close so we're going to do it but we understand that it, it, there's going to be some some bad feeling about it and that that happens that happens
0: okay now Curious I see a number of these uh will list uh an undecorated version coming are you still going to eventually do undecorated we still do
1: undecorated for everything oh yeah we just delivered uh undecorated 646 Real parlors and uh and club galley cars uh, a couple weeks ago so yeah we still do undecs there's not a huge market for them but there's no minimum uh order required you know if the factory with a, with a paint scheme you generally need between 3 and 400 uh of a paint scheme you know, maybe 60 or so of a number. So you can do, say, uh, five numbers, 60 each, and do a run of 300 for a paint scheme. That's fine. And again, we're a very small company, so we're happy with much lower sales than some of the bigger guys do. But uh, we're, we're comfortable with those kind of numbers. Uh, if we're undecorated like an order 12, you know, because it's just a question of taking the thing before it goes to the paint shop and just putting it into the box. You don't install the grab irons. you don't install the windows, etc. Um, so that's easy. Yeah, Undex will still do. And and we are bringing out um, the detailed part line and the kits for the reefer, uh, undecorated and, and painted kits. They're not not painted in the letter, just painted kits uh, for the reefer. And while the the sales have not been ginormous for those, there's still, yeah, we sold, we sold a, a healthy number of, of both. So there are still people out there who, who are interested in kits uh and, and painting and lettering themselves but i will tell you it's a very very small minority uh much different from i mean i i've been in this hobby since i was uh about 4 or 5 years old and i was scratch building my own underbody equipment when i was 13 um, and and things are different now than then certainly from the 1980s to the 2000s um, there's much less of a demand for for kits and a lot of the hardcore guys you know they say why do you bring out kits uh, here's what's involved. Just bring them out. You know, we'll still buy it. You'll sell hundreds. And it's like, no, we'll sell dozens. Alright, we won't sell hundreds. We'll sell dozens. Um, and, uh, and sometimes people have to realize that it's, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not selling, uh, self-sealing stem bolts here. We're selling model trains. If People don't buy them by the thousands. They, they buy, you know, one, two. Right? So you have to, you, you, some things that people would think would sell tons may not. Right? A very interesting. Story. Uh, uh, my friend Richard uh, is uh, a great buddy of mine. He does all our translations because our, our instructions are bilingual English and French. And, um, and he knows he's forgotten more about CN passenger cars than most people, including me, will ever know. Um, and, uh, and so Richard calls me up one time and says, Jason, uh, I go, uh, he's, he's from Montreal and so am I. So I said, yo, Jason, I got to tell you, you got to do Mount Club. Mount Royal Club car. You know, 653, you have to do it. You'll sell thousands of them, Jason. All right? So I said to him, Richard, Mount Royal Club car, there's one. He said, that's right. It was rebuilt from my coach. I said, we both know it. I said, I have a Mount Royal Club already that I built from scratch. Yes. You're making a Mount Royal Club out of one of our cars. Yes. Those are the two people who would buy the Royal Club. And neither of us are going to buy it because we already have. It. Okay. Okay. He loves this stuff, right? So he's gonna say he wants to buy it. So he figures everybody else does. Yeah, you know, and sure. that him. But yeah, we we would have sold it too.
0: Okay, that's uh, that's that's interesting. So, you know, you're doing the manufacturing in in China. You found uh, now for that facility that's over there because you know here recently in the industry has been hit by some. Yeah, real negative event in China, like you had the one big manufacturer going out of business, I guess.
1: Well, that's and, what it, it started a couple of years ago. It started when, uh, it started actually even before then. It started years ago. It started when, uh, JP Morgan and Chase ended up buying Sandicam. Sandicam was the, sorry, I has a sip of water there. Sandicam was the, the largest supplier of model trains in the world. And they supplied, you know, the majority of, uh, of of manufacturers in North America and Europe were supplied by Sandican. Um So Sandy Ken was uh, run by W.S. Ting, who was the most phenomenal businessman, uh, really phenomenal. I mean, we're talking about somebody whose word was his bond, uh, is his bond, he's still around, but he's retired. Uh, word is his bond, and developed a relationship where if he said he's going to do something, he'd do it. And, you know, he was open to trying new things, and he was honest, and he said, you know what, that order is too low, I can't make that because I've got cash flow issues, I'm going to have to delay that. And he was totally open. And what, what like, in, 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 the Jews have a term called a mensch. You know, mensch is a real respectable, honorable guy. And he, he was a mensch of the first degree, he is a mensch of the first degree. Um, but when he was no longer in control of Santa Can, things started to just sort of fall apart. The communication was not good. Uh, prices started going up higher and higher. Um, and then uh, Sandican was eventually bought by Cater. Now, Cater owns Bachman. A lot of people think Bachman is an American company. It was until 1988. It is owned by Cater in China. Okay, uh, Cater is the largest manufacturer of model trains in the world and is, in fact, one of the largest toy manufacturers in the world as well. Um, and Cater bought Sandican. And initially said, you know, we're going to continue business as usual, but then said, okay, well, you know, we've changed our minds and we're going to basically, to a whole bunch of the smaller clients, that was the bread and butter of Sandy Can, they said, we're not going to make transfer anymore. So what happened was you suddenly had close to 50 uh, companies who no longer had a source of supply. And these companies all have payroll, they all have advertising expenses, they all have heat, rent, light, etc. These people have overheads they have to pay. So they were in a panic um, whether it's from a very big company, there are very big companies that, that had to leave Santa Can to very small companies who would only do, you know, uh, a few hundred thousand dollars a year. There, it was a whole bunch of people, so companies suddenly found themselves without a supplier, so they had to 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 move as quickly as possible to find new sources of supply. So what happened was. All of the uh, existing train suppliers in China, my factory included, because I don't own my factory. A lot of people think I do. I, you know, I was, for many years, the only client at my factory, um, but I'm not the actual owner of the factory. It's owned by Dennis. And so all the factories suddenly found themselves with all these additional customers, and they couldn't grow uh, big enough to meet the demand. So you ended up with projects being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back simply because these manufacturers, these suppliers, were overwhelmed with the amount of work that they were, they were getting. Um, and that's still going on now. And what happened in January was Creative Master closed down. Um, and I'm just going to take another sip here. here. So Creative Master closed down, and they were a big supplier as well. Uh, they had 3,000 employees, and their problem was that uh, a lot of their their uh, clients, you know, were expecting a certain price point, and it's the the cost in China went up faster than we in North America were able to accept. Let's put it that way. Um, so the the they had real trouble meeting the the, the price point that uh, was deemed acceptable to a North American and European audience. Right. Uh, modelers. And so what happened was they just basically ran out of cash. They couldn't pay their bills. Um, and so when they closed down, now another supplier um, that was supplying North American and European manufacturers out of business. So that's now put additional pressure on the existing factories. So there's going to be more delays uh, in China because of this. So that's really been um, uh, the story. You know, in addition to there's been rising uh, costs of labor, uh, rising costs of materials, um, and that I think in itself we could accept. You know, if, if we accept the fact that the quality, the standard of living in China is going up and up and up, it's got a huge middle class now in China, right? And it's becoming more like North America, to be honest. Um, and you know, people are willing to accept the the, the gradual price increases. But it's the price increases coupled with delays of a year or more that's driving everybody nuts, right? And it, it's sort of the double whammy. And it's going to be a while. And, and talking with other manufacturers, there's a general consensus it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. You know, So it, it, we're in for some tough times, some major price increases and continued delays. Yeah, you know, so this this is this is the reality we're facing. And uh, and as I said in my newsletter when I when I addressed this head on, I really believe in in open communication. Uh, but I but I let people know far too much about the back end of the business. I want them to know, you know, if there's a delay, this is why, right? This is why. We've put this on hold. We're not going to spin it and say everyone loves it. we will put it on hold cuz nobody's ordered the darn thing. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to be honest about it. Um so uh so you know, I said in the newsletter that that um it, it's, it's, it's gonna be a tough time. And we're not yet set up in countries like in, Everyone says, what about India? Are we gonna move there? You know, can we make trains there? Uh, we're not set up to, we being the industries, to make trains in a place like India. The main reason is that there's a real specialized knowledge involved in making model trains. There's a reason why that there is no full-service manufacturer in North America making everything, not just a couple of freight cars or whatever, but making locomotives, passenger cars, freight cars, etc., in North America. Um, there, is, there are people tooling them in North America, but they're not making them in North America. There's a special uh, skill set that has been developed in China, really sort of clustered around Sandacan in the south of China, of the, these people who have been making model trains all their lives. They were, they they came out of out of engineering school and they went straight into a model train factory and they're now 40 years old and they spent the last 18 years making nothing but model trains. These you you can't discount that experience. You know that is that's a tremendous amount of of intellectual capital that is right now located in southern China, and Sandican really started you know in the night, late 60s uh, started uh, developing that intellectual capital and developed it over uh, a 40 plus year period. Um, so if you you can't suddenly show up in a place like India, which is specialized in the customer service industries, and say, okay, I'm going to take all you people who are well educated and are working in call centers, and I'm going to you're going to come over here and you're going to assemble model trains, you know, you, you can't do that, right? Um, there, there's that. What's missing is that the 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 guys with 30 years experience making trains. You know, when you if you go to any product that you buy at Walmart. Um, and you look closely at the printing. A lot of that stuff's made in China, right? And you look closely at the printing. You're never going to find HO scale EMD builder plates. <laughs> okay, you're never going to find something that small uh, on a, uh, a rubber ducky, <laughs> or on a pot, or on this, or on that. You know what I mean? Or 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 on on a, a set of dishes. There's a certain skill set involved in printing these tiny tiny, microscopic lettering there's a certain skill set involved in assembling a passenger car that's 11 inches by two inches by two inches with 300 parts you know and that skill set hasn't really been developed in countries outside of china you know so it's a reality it's a reality and yet you know i hear it all the time bring the jobs back to the united states and canada um and it's funny when people email me you know you got to bring the jobs back to America. I, I, I'm not going to buy your stuff until they're made in America. I said, "You're yeah, sorry, buddy, but even if I brought them back, they'd be made in Canada. <laughs> you know? um, so it's an it's, uh, interesting uh, situation there with those emails. Um, but, you know, I'd love to have the stuff made here. It would reduce my cost enormously and, and, and help in terms of communication, whatever else. But, <laughs> but right now, um, the cost of making a ready-to-run passenger car, like one of our cars, uh, I estimate to make a, a car here would probably cost in the region of $100 to $150 our raw cost to make one of those cars. Um, and it's in terms of labor costs, labor materials. You know? And so you have to, if you want to amortize your tooling and you want to make a little bit of a profit, you've got to more than double that to get to your retail price, right? Uh, sorry, you just double that to get to your wholesale price. So if I double the 150, I get to a wholesale price of 300, we're looking at a $500 retail price on a plastic passenger car. That's how, that's how vastly out of line the costs are right now here versus, versus China. And I don't know, what's, you know, what's gonna happen in, in, in 20 years? You know, I, I have, I don't have a crystal ball, I can't say. Um, but if, th- if things continue to really increase in cost, what I would like to see, what I would like to see is a, a real explosion of, uh, basement and garage manufacturers using inexpensive 3D printers and other rapid prototyping methods, making run, products out of resin, and we're seeing, uh, models made, you know, uh, that, that you have to build and decorate and, and, you know, assemble yourself just like it was many years ago.
0: This will be the end of part two with our interview with Jason Schron of Rapido. So go to iTunes and download part three for the conclusion.